All right, I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got a couple in the back. We'd love to give you one. That's our gift to you. So just raise your hand real quick and Stephen can grab you one. But we'll be, uh, Lord willing, covering Genesis 43 and 44 and most of 45. But we do still plan to let you out before lunch. But we're going to have to move quick. Uh, many of you get our weekly emails. And if you do, then you've probably read through the text already and you've already considered several questions to help you understand. If you don't get those emails... Um, we would love to add you that list. That way you can uh, reflect on the truths that have been preached in the previous week. We want to be not just hearers, but doers. And so it serves us well to be reminded of the things we've heard from Scripture. Um, but also, um, I believe that you'll probably get more out of Sunday if you come with a prepared heart, with a heart that's already prayed, a heart that's expectant, a heart that's already even read through our text and been chewing on it yourself. You'll probably get more out of our service if you will spend a few minutes doing that. So if you don't already get those and you'd like to, let me know. I'd be happy to add you to that. Um, but if you've been part of our study through Genesis, then you'll know this theme we've been repeating again and again and again as we've gone through the life of Joseph. The theme of the Joseph story is God's providence, meaning his sovereign control over all that happens, the way that he works all things together to fulfill his will. God's providence ensures the fulfillment of God's promises. God's made several big promises to Joseph and even before Joseph, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even before them, he made promises to Adam and Eve about a descendant who would come and crush the head of the serpent. How will these promises be brought to bear? How will they be brought to pass? How will they be fulfilled? Well, through some remarkable terms of God's providence. He works all things together, as Paul says in Ephesians, according to the counsel of his will. But this providence, this sovereign control over all things that happen, his governance over his creation, it's not a cold, heartless control over the affairs of men. It is not a, a mechanical, robotic um, ruling over the details of the universe. God's providence, get this, is guided by his grace. By his grace. God's purpose here in Genesis is not just to rescue the family of Jacob, but also to purify and to restore them. Those are gracious purposes. And through them to provide the blessing of salvation to all the world. That is grace. Joseph has been laying the pressure, as we saw last week, on his brothers. They've been tested. And that testing will both reveal and help to complete a process of transformation in them. God's purpose of grace, to change them and make them who they must be. Joseph's goal in testing them is not revenge. On the contrary, he longs to be reunited with his brothers and to rescue them from the famine that he knows is to continue for several more years. But the process of reconciliation, for Joseph to fully extend this grace to them and for them to be able to receive it, it will require more than just his forgiveness although it will take that, it will also require their repentance. That's what Joseph is looking for. He's looking for their repentance. Theologian Louis Burkhoff summarizes three elements of repentance. I'm going to read this for you. because That's a word we throw around in a church context, repent or repentance. What does that mean? Could you define that if I asked you? Here's how Burkhoff helpfully summarizes repentance. He says, number one, there is an intellectual element where there is a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. Part of repentance is thinking differently about your sin. Joseph's brothers needed that. They had sold him into slavery. They had lied to their father and deceived him by taking his coat and tearing it, smearing it with blood. Repentance would involve for them an intellectual element. But secondly, Burkhoff points out, there's also an emotional element where there's not just a change of mind, he says there's a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy and just God. It's one thing to know you're, uh, that you're a sinner, but it's another thing to care. And this is essential for true repentance to take place. Burkhoff continues, third, there is not just an intellectual element, and there's not just an emotional element, but he says there's also a volitional element speaking about the will. 
your choice, your decisions. There's a volitional element where there is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin, and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. I think that's a great definition of what repentance is. It's a change of mind, it's a change of heart in our attitude, and it's a change of the will where we recognize our sin, we are grieved and broken over it, and we determine to turn from that sin and seek cleansing and pardon and forgiveness. We saw last week that God uses the pressure of a guilty conscience to to awaken a sense of conviction so that we'll realize we have a problem. That problem is sin. Well, the reason God puts that pressure on us, it's meant to produce this kind of repentance. But often this process doesn't happen all at once, does it? Sometimes it takes time for us to get from a realization of sin to a proper sorrow over that sin and a commitment to turn from it and to seek cleansing. It can take time. It can take time to get to that place of having a broken and contrite heart, as David describes it in Psalm 51. And we see this process of arriving at true repentance. We see this process playing out in the lives of Joseph's brothers. They are guilty of sin, but in the process of coming to repentance. They're in the process of, of coming to the point where they can finally experience reconciliation with their brother Joseph. In chapter 43 through 45, we arrive not at the conclusion of the Joseph story, but definitely at the climax. If you've been following this story and you know the secret that the brothers don't know, that the second man in command of Egypt, the one that's dealing with them, selling them grain, is actually their brother Well, the big reveal is about to happen. And in the climax of this story, we see the triumph of grace. Grace extended to repentant men. And we see a model of grace in Joseph that alerts us to the higher working of God's divine grace. So let's jump into this. We have three points for three chapters this morning. So we're going to try to fly through this. Number one, we see this in chapter 43. Grace provides generously for undeserving sinners. Grace provides generously for undeserving sinners. We know that there's a standoff between Joseph in Egypt and Jacob back in Canaan. Well, pressure will break the standoff. Look in verse 1 and 2. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. In chapter 43, we see the famine that had been foretold by Pharaoh's dreams. It's still in full effect. Jacob's family had already once traveled to Egypt to buy food. But remember what happened. When Joseph's brothers arrived in Egypt, they'd been accused of being spies. And what's more, they had had their money that they had used to buy grain actually planted in their sacks on the return journey. They didn't realize that it was their long-lost brother, Joseph, who was in charge and that he was testing them by doing these things. Now Joseph held Simeon as a hostage, so to speak, in Egypt and was demanding that if they were to return and see his face again, that they must bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to prove their story. Benjamin was Joseph's only full brother. And if they would do this, then Simeon would be released and they would become eligible once again to buy more food. But there was a problem. Jacob had refused to allow Benjamin to return with them. He didn't trust his sons. He knew their character, and he had a suspicion that somehow they were at fault for what had happened to Joseph all those years before, although he couldn't prove it. And he feared the loss of Rachel's only remaining son, and he feared that it would break his heart and bring him to the grave in sorrow. But you know what? Eventually, they went to the fridge, and there was nothing there. (laughs) They ran out of food, and so he had no choice. Notice Judah's appeal in verses 3 through 10. But Judah said to him, after he gave them these instructions to go buy a little food, Judah says, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, 
both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame Simeon would have been the next in line. Remember, Simeon is incarcerated in Egypt, so he can't speak on behalf of the brothers. Levi was the thirdborn, but he had disgraced himself by his deceptive act of violence. Remember the incident at Shechem. So now the fourth-born son of Jacob, a man named Judah, emerges as a spokesman and leader of the brothers. Now, Judah had his issues too. won't recount all of those, but his character had definitely some marks on it. But if you remember what happened in the incident with Tamar, we saw a spark of change in Judah. And now we see that he is emerging as the leader and spokesman of these brothers. And in contrast to Jacob's somewhat selfish and foolish and emotional reasoning, we see in Judah urgency and wisdom and a selfless offer as he pledges himself to prove his honesty, promising his father that he will care for Benjamin. He personally guarantees to bring him safely home. And so Jacob is forced to relent. Look at what he says in verse 11 through 15. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved." Jacob's response is a reluctant admission that they really have no choice at this point. The threat of death has forced his hand, and he now must risk losing Benjamin in order to save him. His instructions remind us of a previous crisis years earlier. Remember when Jacob was returning to the land of Canaan, and he feared that his estranged brother Esau was coming for revenge? He had sent a gift ahead, hoping that that would sort of soften him up. So he gives a similar instruction to his sons now hoping to placate the wrath of this anonymous ruler in Egypt. He feebly offers a blessing in verse 14. Remember what he says there? He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Mercy. Little did Jacob know that God Almighty is truly at work, doing like Paul says in Ephesians, above and beyond all that we could ask for or think. The man that he refers to is none other than his very son, Joseph. And the mercy about to be shown to them would mean the restoration of the family and rescue from famine. Later, they would marvel at the wise providence of this God Almighty who had shown them, undeserving sinners, so much mercy. But at this moment, Jacob sort of sounds like a fatalist, doesn't he? If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It is what it is. What else are we going to do? So the brothers pack up and head to Egypt for a second time. And the first thing that Joseph does when they get there is invite them for dinner. Look at verse 16. Well, look, let's start in verse 15. So after Jacob's statement, the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And you see what happens here, their response. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. 
The invitation to dinner arouses suspicion and fear in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Remember, they feel their guilt from their sin years ago, and they are fully expecting that God is out to get them. So they anxiously try to explain themselves to the steward, but he graciously assures them that nothing is wrong. They are not in danger. He received their money, and their God was blessing them. Now, this is an interesting statement, and you have to wonder, is he sort of bending the truth? Is he telling a lie? Because we know that Joseph, last chapter, commanded the money to be replaced, and the steward is the one who did it. But his statement is not wrong. I mean, consider the theme of the Joseph story, that God's providence is at work behind the scenes orchestrating all these things. The actions of men serve a higher purpose. God is at work, and he uses human agents to accomplish his will. This statement of assurance that the steward gave them would have encouraged the brothers. Their father's feeble prayer had been effective. God Almighty was showing them mercy, but more than they even realized at this point. Then they finally get to meet Joseph face to face. Picking things back up, let's start in verse uh, 25. Verse 24, rather. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Remember Joseph's dream. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Simeon is reunited with his brothers. And with Benjamin present, now all 11 of Joseph's brothers bow down before him. Remember those dreams from over 20 years earlier, that, that, the, 12, that, that the 11 sheaves bow down to the 12th, to his. And that the sun, moon, and stars, representing his father, mother, and all his brothers, bow down to him. He's seeing those dreams now coming even closer to being fulfilled. All his brothers are now present. All that remains is for now his father to come and join them. So he eagerly asks about his father. He's no longer treating them harshly like he did the first time. He's speaking with familial concern. And they answer again and bow low, face down before the brother. It's ironic here that they bow down literally flat on their face before their brother, whom years before they had scorned him for dreaming, for daring to think that his older brothers and his parents would bow down to him. When Joseph comes face to face with Benjamin, his emotions swell up within him. In verse 29, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, And said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. Joseph longs to embrace his brothers and be be reunited with him. But the time is not right yet. So he's still trying to keep things under wraps. So instead of telling them who he is, he goes out and weeps in private, and then he comes back and orders the food to be served. And they enjoy dinner in Joseph's house. In verse 32, it tells us that they served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who wait with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, get this, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Now, the important thing to notice here is that the seating arrangement at dinner strikes a nerve with these brothers. Remember, as we talked about last week, their sense of guilt has made them fearful. And the fact that they are seated perfectly according to their birth order, it unnerves them. I mean, the Egyptians couldn't possibly know that. How could they know the birth order of 11 sons? They have an uneasy sense of divine exposure, and they are amazed. At this point, they're still oblivious to the identity of Joseph. 
And as the food is served, Joseph makes sure that Benjamin, his full brother, his only other sibling who is the, the full um, child of, of Rachel and Jacob together, he makes sure that Benjamin gets five times as much as the others. Now, on one hand, this is showing honor to this brother who has a, he has a special relationship. But on the other hand, it's also a test. It's a test for the others. How will the ten treat the new favorite? They had once resented Joseph for being the favorite and had been filled with envy when he got special treatment. But the brothers now do not seem to be bothered. They are merry. They don't let this ruin their enjoyment of the feast. So they appear to be passing the test. In this chapter, we see a lot of grace being shown here by Joseph. His brothers who had sinned against him are richly welcomed. Simeon is set free. This meal is shared together. And considering what they had done to him over 20 years before, this shows a remarkable spirit of grace in Joseph's heart. They do not deserve such generosity. Yet he shows them great hospitality. They had thrown him into a pit, but he welcomes them into his house. They had sold him as a slave, yet he welcomes them as honored guests. Grace provides generously for undeserving sinners. That's true of God, and we see it reflected in the life of Joseph as he extends this kind of grace to his brothers. But secondly, grace also produces spiritual change in sinners. You see, God in his grace not only provides what we need, giving us what we lack, showing grace that way, but he has a purpose. His grace also seeks to change and transform us, to be different than what we used to be, no longer trapped in sin, but transformed to reflect his righteous character. We see this in chapter 44, that grace produces spiritual change in sinners. Joseph has been very generous to his brothers, but he also continues to test them in, in giving, uh, not only in giving extra food to Benjamin, but he's got another test that's, about, that's going to probe their character because he still wants to watch their response. He's looking for evidence that they are truly changed men who can now be trusted and embraced without fear of treachery. So he orders a final test in verses 1 through 13, chapter 44. It says, Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we st steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. No sooner had they gotten outside of city limits than they are overtaken by Joseph's stewards, steward. And when they hear the accusation of theft, they are adamant in, in protesting their innocence, just as Jacob once swore death for anyone found with Laban's household gods. Remember when he fled the house of Laban and Rachel had stolen those household idols and Jacob said, we don't have them, feel free to search and whoever finds them will die. And he swore that oath in his ignorance uh, we see a similar thing happening here. Uh, his sons are so confident that none of them are guilty of this crime that they make a similar vow. Death to the perpetrator and slavery for everybody else, if this is true. 
And the suspense builds as the search is performed one by one. You get the sense that Moses here is a master storyteller as he narrates this. Starting with the oldest, they let down their sacks and they search till they get to the youngest, until at last. And in the, in the Hebrew text, actually, the word Benjamin is the final word in the sentence. that It is found in the sack of Benjamin. And this is a crushing blow. The reaction of the brothers here is significant. Notice what they do. When they see that the cup is found in the sack of Benjamin, they tore their clothes. This is a sign of great mourning and grief and despair. It's interesting. Once they had torn someone else's coat, Joseph's to be specific, and they had tricked their father into thinking that Joseph was dead with cold hearts and a callous conscience, but now they're in despair because they fear losing a brother and they know how this is going to affect their father and it causes their hearts to break so they tear their clothes and notice that they all return to the city even though the steward insisted that I'm only interested in the guilty party. You can go free, but Benjamin must return. But they all load up their donkeys and return as one group to the city. They will each lend their voice and their presence to the defense of Benjamin's innocence and the appeal for his freedom. These brothers are different, aren't they? Something has changed because they're different than they were before. Grace is producing a spiritual change in their hearts. Just as Judah had spoken for the brothers when they appealed to Jacob back in Canaan, once again Judah is leading the pack as they enter the house of, jo of Joseph, and it is Judah who will speak on behalf of them all. I want you to look at Judah's confession and his request in verse 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers, here's Judah the ringleader leading the charge, when they came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. It's interesting what Judah says. He says, We are guilty. We are guilty. Now we know from reading this that they didn't take the cup. So what is Judah confessing to? He's not confessing to the charge, he's confessing. To something else. He says, We are guilty. God has found out our guilt. We're guilty not of stealing the cup, but of a crime against our brother years before. They have interpreted all of their quote unquote bad luck as God's punishment, and they know that they are now reaping what they have sown. And Judah says, Listen, we're tired of running. They know that they have to take their medicine and face the consequences for their sin. So he says, We are your slaves. They offer to experience the same fate, get this, that they had once subjected Joseph to, selling him into slavery. They know that this is what they themselves now deserve. They may be innocent of this whole cup incident, but they know they are guilty men, and God is not going to let them get away with it. What a change. What a change has happened in their hearts. Once hardened liars, once cruel and violent, they now stand broken and repentant. They fear God and have given up hiding their sin. They are confessing and willingly facing the consequences for what they have done. Joseph, however, refuses Judah's request. Judah says, we are all your servants. But Joseph demands that only the perpetrator remain as his servant. Only Benjamin is to stay. Now, why is this? Why does Joseph answer this way? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for this response. I think, first of all, now that Benjamin was in Egypt, Joseph doesn't want Benjamin to get out of his sight. I think he wanted to protect him. Although, you know, the meal had gone well, perhaps he still didn't fully trust the other brothers. And who can blame him? Joseph knows what these men are capable of. But secondly, I think that Joseph also knew that only his father's deep love for Benjamin could ever compel him to leave Canaan. Remember, Joseph's goal is to get all of his family into Egypt, 
But if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll see the, the massive evidence that's been placed by God in his instructions to the patriarchs that the land of Canaan is where they are to dwell. The land of Canaan is what he's going to give them. Therefore, the land of Canaan is where they must stay. Joseph knew that Benjamin would be the only bargaining piece that could possibly convince his father to get down to Egypt. And then there's a third reason. I also think that him deciding, him insisting on keeping Benjamin proved to be the final test for Joseph's brothers. You know, years before they had sold him for 20 shekels of silver, would they now exchange Benjamin for a much greater price, their own freedom? This would prove to be the ultimate test of their brotherly love and of their loyalty and care uh, for their father. But then Judah speaks again, and we're not going to read this entire speech, but in verses 18 through 34, Judah gives us the longest and most passionate speech in all of Genesis. And I hope you took time to read it this week, or that you will when you get home later, because it's amazing to see the care and the humility of his words. Judah addresses Joseph with great humility and recounts, first of all, the history of their dealings with him. You know, this is now their second time coming to Egypt, and they've been going back and forth with Joseph for a while. But he tells Joseph how all these things had affected his father Jacob, and he expresses to Joseph his concern for his father's well-being and for how this news would affect him. What a change Joseph would have seen in this. Once they had callously broken their father's heart by deceiving, them, deceiving him into thinking that Joseph was dead, but now Judah is afraid of his father's reaction to losing Benjamin. Judah also tells Joseph about his pledge to Jacob, that he had personally guaranteed his freedom, and, and tells him about the personal responsibility he feels. And in light of all of this, he makes an amazing statement. I want you to look at the end of this speech at what he says. He says in verse 33, Now therefore, in light of all of this, in light of how this will affect his father, in light of the personal promise Judah has made, he says, now therefore, please let your servant remain, speaking of himself, instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is an amazing statement, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. As Jesus would later say in the Gospel of John, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. What Judah is now doing is actually a foreshadowing of what his ultimate descendant, not just David who had come through his lineage, but Jesus the Messiah. It's a foreshadowing of what Christ would do in offering himself as a substitute so that someone who is condemned could go free. He offers himself as a substitute. You know, previously Judah had been willing to sacrifice Joseph's freedom to improve his own life. But we've seen a change. A change produced by God's grace. That now Judah is willing to sacrifice his life for Benjamin's freedom. What an incredible change that, ta that has taken place in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. This, friends, is the result of God's working. They didn't just naturally like kind of grow up and mellow out and become nicer people in their old age. No, this is the work of God. Only God can change the character of a person. God has used the pressures of life. God has used the conviction of a guilty conscience. He's used the testing of Joseph to expose their sin, but also to reshape their character, to make Judah into a leader of men, to make Judah into one whose word is his bond, one whose love for his father was not dampened by knowing that he wasn't the favorite to make Judah into one whose care for Benjamin was not poisoned by jealousy or by envy. Grace produces spiritual change in sinners. But that's not all. Grace provides for those who are undeserving. Grace produces change in the hearts of sinners. But third, grace secures reconciliation with sinners. And that's what we see in chapter 45. After hearing Judah's impassioned plea and his offer to exchange himself for Benjamin's freedom and his care for his father, Joseph cannot keep his emotions hidden any longer. It says in verse 1 of chapter 45, Then Joseph could not control himself 
before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Think about this. Over two decades worth of waiting and hurting, much suffering has taken place in his life. Rejection by family, violent abuse at the hands of his blood brothers, and now God, had put him, God has put him in a position to be able to rescue them, and God has changed his brothers. It's too much for him to bear. Now his own brother Benjamin is before him. He's heard this confession of Judah. He's heard their confession about how they'd caused grief to his father. I mean, all of this has piled up. And he sees now, he's convinced now, once and for all, that they are changed men. And his desire to reconcile with him now erupts into these emotions. And then Joseph reveals his identity. This massive story that's been building for chapters and decades comes to a climax in verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph's announcement must have been enormous relief to him. I mean, he's been hiding this secret. He's been trying to keep his emotions in check, trying to, to keep up this front so that they wouldn't know. And for him to finally let it all out is this massive relief. But to his brothers, it was a shock. Their years of guilt and remorse and regret leaves them terrified. They are stunned left speechless at this announcement from this Egyptian ruler with an Egyptian name who's been speaking the Egyptian language who now speaks to them in their own tongue with the familiar dialect and accent and voice of their brother, Joseph. Suddenly, everything makes sense to them. All of his questions, I mean, why is this guy asking us about our family and if we have any brothers? The planting of evidence in order to convict them, the seating arrangement at dinner, the extra portions for Benjamin, suddenly everything makes sense. And their dread of what's going to happen is so strong they can't even speak. What is Joseph going to do to us? How did we end up here? But Joseph shows amazing compassion to them. Look at Joseph's speech to them. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph relieves the massive tension in the room by speaking a word of grace to his brothers. He assures them that his intention is not to punish them, but to provide for them. He's not interested in revenge, but in rescue. He's not seeking retribution. He wants reconciliation. So he seeks to put them at ease and relieve their fears and stop any more arguing about whose fault it was. Now we have to consider what 
is the secret to Joseph's ability to respond with such compassion and forgiveness to his brothers. Some of you have experienced sin, the wicked acts of others against you that has caused great harm. It's caused years of pain, suffering perhaps. How could Joseph find it in himself to show them so much compassion? Here's what it boils down to. It was his understanding of God's providence and his embrace of God's purpose. I'm going to say that again because we need to get this. It was his understanding of God's providence and his embrace of God's purpose that enabled him to show grace to those who had sinned against them. Four times, note what he says in verses 5 through 9. He says in verse 5, God sent me before you. He says in verse 7, God sent me before you. He says in verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He says in verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. That is what allowed him to be free from bitterness and cynicism. Now, it doesn't mean that it didn't hurt doesn't mean that there wasn't real pain. I mean, three times now we've seen his emotional uh, eruption as he can't even contain his tears. So it doesn't mean that Joseph didn't feel it. And it also doesn't mean that their sinful choices are okay. Not at all. Their sin took quite the toll on the family. Joseph suffered. His father suffered. They themselves had experienced years of guilt and conviction. And And it brought testing and it brought pain and it brought difficulty into their life. But at the end of the day, Joseph understood that God was in control and he embraced God's purpose. And he knew that God's purpose was not for him to execute judgment on his family. He knew that the reason he was standing there, the reason that they were now kneeling, falling on their face before him, was so that there could be reconciliation and rescue. And he embraced God's purpose. He says, I understand what God wants me to do. And he fully embraced God's higher purpose in all that has happened. And this is what freed him to forgive. And this leads to reconciliation. Verses 14 through 15, we see him united with his brother Benjamin, but not just Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin didn't throw him into a pit. The others did. But he kissed all of them and talked with all of them. It's one of the most beautiful and touching scenes in the entire book of Genesis. As the brothers are reunited, mutual tears are shed. There's personal greetings. I'm sure there's words of apology and forgiveness. God's providence has brought about an amazing change in the family and preserved them from the family through the suffering and exaltation of Joseph. All throughout this climactic portion of the Joseph story, we're confronted again and again and again with the triumph of God's sovereign grace. God provides generously for undeserving sinners. The family of Israel, these sons who would later become the heads of the 12 tribes, they didn't deserve God's protection and provision, yet God gives it. Grace produces spiritual change in sinners. God takes these men who are bloodthirsty, cutthroat liars, who are cruel and wicked, and he changes them to be broken and repentant and contrite. And grace secures reconciliation with sinners. God heals and restores what had been broken and marred by sin. At a human level, we see the grace shown by Joseph to his brothers as he pursues reconciliation. And in the end, assuring them of his forgiveness and compassion. But at the divine level, we see the grace shown by God. As his covenant promises are upheld, as he preserves the covenant family and his covenant purposes are furthered, as he produced change in them, shaping them into who they must be as they will become this chosen nation. And you know what? This same grace that is so active in the Joseph narrative, it's evident in our lives as well, isn't it? We experience the grace of divine provision, just like them. Now, we may not be in a seven-year famine, But God has provided something much more important for us than food. Man cannot live by bread alone, right? We need God. We need what only he can provide. We need his word, the living word. We need Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4.10, it says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And notice how God has provided for us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has provided for us a Savior in Jesus Christ. Though we are undeserving, 
Though we are sinners, he has shown his mercy through this gracious provision. We also experience the grace of divine reconciliation. Just as Joseph and his brothers were reunited, God draws us to himself, though we have sinned against him, and he reconciles us to himself by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He does this through a substitute, a substitute who is greater than Judah. Colossians 1.20 says that through Christ, God is pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. How does he do this? How does God bring about reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people like you and me? Paul tells us, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is a God of reconciliation. That's what his grace does. He makes sons out of rebels. He finds friends among enemies. He has bridged the gap and covered the transgression that has separated us from him. He's forgiven our debt, pronounced us righteous, and he does it on the basis of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice because of a substitute that has been provided. The offer of Judah was noble, but Judah was a sinful man who really did deserve punishment. But the innocent son of God, Jesus Christ, offered himself in our place, a spotless lamb, a righteous servant, and he bore our transgressions so that you and I could be reconciled, reconciled to God. That's what grace does. And we too experience the grace of spiritual transformation, don't we? As God's purposes of grace are at work in us, he changes us so that we are not who we used to be. And he does this through the power of his spirit. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is it that can take a sinful person and remake them into a saint? Only the grace of God. You and I can't do that. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't somehow atone for our, our past failures. We can't somehow, through our own effort and sheer will, make ourselves who we must be in order to enjoy fellowship with God. No, that's something God does in us. It's a miracle. It's a divine miracle to make us a new creation. Have you received this grace, the gracious provision of a Savior? The grace of reconciliation with God through the substitutionary death of his son. The grace of transformation to make you a new person. If you haven't, God offers it to you today. This grace is offered to all. But hear me, that this grace will only be experienced by those who respond with repentance. Repentance. You see, there's a lot of people that feel guilty. Just like Joseph's brothers felt guilty, didn't they? They knew they were sinners. But though many feel guilty, few truly repent and therefore experience reconciliation with God. In Acts 3.19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The implication is that if you do not repent, if you do not go through like what Burkhoff explained, that change of mind and the change of heart that results in a change of the will, if you do not repent, your sins are not blotted out. And if your sins are not blotted out, you cannot be reconciled to God because you've rejected his provision of a savior. You have not been changed, but are still in your sins and are condemned and destined for judgment. This repentance, friends, is not optional. It is commanded by God. And it's commanded not just for the really bad people, but for everyone. Listen to Acts 17.30. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you. And it includes me. And it includes every person who's ever fallen short of the glory of God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Jesus returns, he will judge the earth. And there will only be two categories of people. Those who have rejected the provision of grace. Those who are still in their sins, who have not repented, and are therefore deserving of justice. 
And in the other hand, there will be those who have repented of their sin and received God's mercy and been made new. And then we will see our Savior face to face. But listen, you have a decision to make today. Because saving grace is only experienced by those who turn from their sin and placed, place their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ. Our only hope is to receive his mercy. But the good news, as we've seen here in the story of Joseph, is that the God of the Bible, the only God, the true God, our God, is a God who delights to extend his grace to sinners and to change them and to bring them to himself for all eternity and fellowship with them. God delights to do that. Will you receive his grace today? And if you have, will you celebrate it? Will you rest in that grace? Will you rejoice and boast in Christ alone? God's providence ensures the fulfillment of God's promises. We see this so clearly in Genesis. And we see also that these promises are ultimately promises of grace, aren't they? And they're brought about in such a way that highlights the grace of God so that we might learn to rest in that grace and to worship him for that grace. All glory and praise to the God of sovereign grace. God, as we read these amazing stories, sometimes we identify with Joseph when we've been sinned against. We feel the hurt and pain, the wounding. There's a lot for us to learn there about the secret to forgiveness, the way to respond to suffering and trials. But Lord, we also need to identify with Joseph's brothers because we too have sinned. We too are guilty and you have found out our guilt. But God, we are encouraged when we see that your purpose is to produce, through the weight of conviction, to produce a heart of repentance in us so that we can be restored, so that we can be changed, so, so that we can be forgiven, so that your purposes of redeeming a people for yourself can be accomplished, all to the praise of your glorious grace. God, I pray that for those who may still be in their sins today, I pray that today they would truly repent, that their minds would acknowledge the truth that they are sinners, and that their sin deserves eternal judgment. I pray that their hearts would be broken, that they would weep and grieve over their sin, and I pray that you'd produce a change in their will, that they would turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus and follow him. Lord, we know that you desire to produce this response in us and to fulfill your purposes of grace in us. We don't deserve it, and we can't perform it on our own, but through your power and in your mercy, this is what you've provided to us through Jesus. We thank you for it. We worship you for it. May we boast only in Christ, and I pray that you would use us to tell others of this good news so that many more will come to rejoice in and rest in the grace of our God. Amen.